0: You're very welcome to another episode of the Scaling Your Business podcast. For this episode, we're joined by Alan Coleman, the founder and CEO of Sweeper. Alan, you're very welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much, man.
0: Delighted to have you. Typical fashion of the show is you focus on three main areas, early influences, a couple of minutes to get to know you, uh, and then the fun part, challenges, pivotal moments, where the real value comes. So uh, no different with you. Uh, I believe you grew up in Dublin. Uh, what was your early days on life like growing up in Dublin?
1: Fairly unremarkable, I would say. Uh, I, uh, I grew up in North Dublin, um, fairly kind of uh, middle-class upbringing, I guess. Uh, went to school uh, in Belvedere. Um, and I suppose the most relevant piece, to you know, my, my, I didn't come from an entrepreneurial background. My dad worked for Arlingus for his entire career. I didn't particularly demonstrate any entrepreneurial tendencies uh, during my time in school or college. And um, what I did, though, I guess what was most formative is I ended up up going going and studying science in UCD, doing computer science and maths as a general degree. I uh, wouldn't describe myself as excelling in either, but I did enough to get by. And then I did a postgraduate course in Kerriesford in uh, a, a master's in business studies, which sort of set the framework for my career there, thereafter, where I always straddled that business uh, meeting technology piece. So I was conversant, technologically conversant, mm-hmm. but I had a good uh, aptitude in mind for business challenges and opportunities. And so was, that was formative in how the jobs I would subsequently get and the way I would think about ultimately starting my own entrepreneurial journey.
0: You've mentioned that your parents aren't entrepreneurial, your dad being uh, working for Aerilingus, um, and you chose computer science and maths. Was, was there anyone that inspired you to get into computers, be a play model from an early age? I guess my real question is why that degree?
1: I was exposed to computers from early age. I had a Vic Twenty, I had a BBC Micro. I played Elite. Um, I, you know, so did I was also exposed to things that were um, maybe a bit geeky. Like I, I kind of straddled two sides. Like I could be geeky and I played rugby in the in the school team. Right. So I was both those those people. Like I would play Dungeons and Dragons. On certain days, and I'd be playing rugby on the school team on other days, right? So I always had that sort of interest in technology and imagination and fantasy and science fiction and that sort of stuff. But I, but, but, um, yeah. So I, I always found I found nothing wrong with with being interested in that, and yet doing what things would traditionally regard as being kind of blokey activities, you know.
0: Mm. Before we move away from this segment, a question I like to ask is there an impact and influence? People can usually point to a number of uh, small people that had an impact on their early life that's helped them become the person they are today. Close friend, acquaintance, teacher, close relative, distant relative. Any one, two or three people spring to mind for you?
1: Yeah, I've been influenced by so many people. I would say my parents both brought in different influences. See, my dad was a very bright guy um, and hard-working. Uh, my mother was tenacious, and like if she wanted something to be got, she would just move heaven and earth to get it. Um, in college, uh, I think um, I'm, I worked with John Mooney, who was the, print, the Dean at, uh, at the Masters uh, at Kerrysford at the time I was there. Um, I always found him um, and his mindset very interesting and very uh, awakening. Um, I remember also. Um, I can't remember his name, but he was a professor. Uh, he was a professor of econ- economics. He taught in Cambridge at the time, and I remember I really enjoyed economics uh, with him. Like we, we, at the time, not to age me, but we were debating the merits of uh, the euro, right, and whether we would abandon the punt to go into the euro and what the economic implications of that might be. And I, often, I found that fascinating.
0: Interesting, interesting. Um, Moving, actually, I'd like to rewind the clock to the year 1999. Uh, You just finished up two years at Morgan Stanley, reading from a screen here in case you see my eyes move backwards and forwards, and moved into a sales manager role at McCalla. You you spent three years there. Mm -hmm. Um, What did sales teach you about people and business? Any key lessons or key takeaways from? And I know you had a sales director role then at Accenture afterwards as well.
1: Yeah, like, um, so Morgan Stanley was my first job. Uh, classic milk round investment banking um, role, uh, straddled kind of trading floor and technology. That was sort of the mm. role I had. Um, then it was the dot-com time. So I spent a couple of years in London, some time in New York, decided it was quite to get back to Dublin, Um, and this job at McCalla came up. And McCalla, they they were uh, doing, at the time, well, the strapline was Corba-based financial frameworks, which Corba was a really early middleware, and basically they were effectively offering enterprise software to help investment banks move trading floor data off the trading floor into somewhere else. Which at the time doesn't sound very remarkable now, but all these systems are proprietary and closed and data wasn't really meant to travel that way. And um, I guess what my time in Macala taught me, and sales in particular taught me was that idea of working with a prospect or a client to to explore the art of the possible, to explore the business value, to look at something that was at effectively at the time was a piece of infrastructure. Like it wasn't a software, it wasn't like a, we didn't sell it as, um, we, we didn't sell it as a, um, with a, a single business case. Early on, we sold it as a piece of enabling infrastructure. So for example, we would do things, we did Europe's first WAP based bank, right? Ulster Bank launched a WAP, Retail banking service, and I don't know if you recall what WAP was like, but it was rudimentary. It was like um, on um, uh, feature phones, and it was just basically changing the menu pattern in feature phones, fed by this WAP markup language, wireless. I don't even know what it for now. Wireless Application Protocol, I think, and. Um, And it was so such a skinny pipe and so little data could come down it and, you know, making something useful in the banking world. When you compare that to Revolut today, like it's laughable. Like it's, Mm. it's like, um, it's like comparing Atari tennis with some of the video games you get on, you know, PlayStation five, like Mm -hmm. just, it's just remarkable. And we went on and then did uh, real time ticker tape updates on iPacks. Like, so an iPack, if you remember, it was a HP-based kind of early tablet or a handheld tablet that would sit into a GSM sleeve with a SIM in the sleeve, running over I'd say 9.6k, and it would flicker updates in real time off a trading floor feed. Like, and these things were just like technology showmanship. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they weren't really like underpinned by some by some fundamental way the technology would change that business model but they were they were motivated to have the latest stuff and so we sort of pitched on that now ultimately that business as it rolled forward we we did find business cases and use cases that were a bit more concrete Um, particularly one one in fact the, the evolution of that business was we ended up doing a a, a project with a bank in holland to to link a bank account with a phone with prepaid top-up. And, and it was the phone was an incentive for people to open savings accounts. But the interesting piece of that puzzle was we could now affect uh, SMS-based authorization for debits on a bank account and credits on, a, on a, an SMSC, the thing that allowed us, or not the SMSC, the, um, the billing engine to update the prepaid phone. And mm. again, why that was very important was because everybody mostly used scratch cards and news agents to top up their phone. There was no electronic top-up, right? So that was the business. But anyway, the whole journey with Makala was very, very smart team building really clever technology, probably struggled a little bit to find the kind of killer application of it. And, And that was, but, but what I learned was that process of working with customers and prospects to Imagineer and to understand the art of the possible with the technology.
0: Interesting. Uh, certainly interesting looking back. Uh, one of the things that you mentioned before you started talking was Punt. And strangely enough, I actually carry around uh, 10 Punt in Did my you? wallet. I didn't know <laughs> if I had, or not had a look. Um,
1: That's a good night out back in my day. You?
0: <laughs> you wouldn't get much of it now, you wouldn't. <laughs> 2010, you founded a Bright Bill. Yeah. And ended up selling that six years later. Um, I talk about blind spots a lot. Things like you know, uh, like road bumps that people run into, where if they didn't run into them, their growth could be like two or four x or six x what it currently is. Things like um, uh, improperly onboarding people, not capturing best practices, uh, not building the badge, not uh, paying attention to lead generation. But I like to flip that on its head with you uh, and touch on the opposite of that. What do you think when done well? Uh, Done better than other businesses. What, what do you think that you did well at Bright Bill better than other businesses that contributed to the success and sale of that venture?
1: Uh, I think there's two things probably I'd point to as being like meaningful. One is it was quite a visual sale, like we were selling a new way to conceive telecommunication bills right now i should say we didn't start with that like i started a business called get it keep it a consumer facing bill aggregation platform that i pivoted within six months to become bright bill so the whole journey of evolving what bright bill would ultimately be took me two two plus years before yeah, on that journey before and there's the last four years of real hard execution that got us where we got to when we knew what we wanted to sell, we sold it visually. We sold it based on this is what your bill looked now to a carrier. It causes you all this problem that it effectively all technology is about ultimately about behavioral change, about eliciting a behavioral change in a customer, whether it's the timing of a message, the word of a message, the color you use, whatever's on the screen, all of this stuff, it's all about nudging our behaviors a little bit, you know, towards in the direction that the, Provider or service provider wants, and the bill was was that it was a very you know it was something that roughly thirty percent of people pay attention to on a monthly basis. So in terms of capturing your existing customer base, it's actually quite a platform that most organizations saw as a as a curse rather than a asset, because it would drive confusion and drive calls and then drive calls would drive operational expense. So. We designed intuitive, intelligent bills that got ahead of issues that were in the bill. You know, identifying you're rolling off an early promo, a promotion, you were on holidays, blah, blah, blah. All the reasons that people get bill shock or are unsettled by the bill, we were trying to get ahead of it with the choice of words, the tone, the imagery, et cetera. And um, so first, that's the first of the things. I think the fact that we sold a visual experience meant we weren't competing with features in our mm. technology. The production of a bill is as old as a telecommunication company. Like it's a hundred years plus old, right? And we said, it's not a revenue collection moment. It's a customer communication moment. And when you pivoted that way, you kind of re reframed the problem people said, oh yeah, well actually that makes perfect sense. And then then we were the only real provider in the space for that sort of answer. The second thing I think we did well, which will sound a bit perverse and co- controversial today was more because of the way that industry works than anything else. We sold perpetual licenses with maintenance. We sold a traditional enterprise license software. The reason I point that as being helpful to the company is that Telecommunications are quite a concentrated industry, um, and building elongated cash flows off a SaaS-based revenue model is uh, punitive. It's a great thing if you can build it, but it it means that you basically have to mainline external capital. Uh, in order to drive your growth until your cash flow and your cost base kind of meet equilibrium. And so Mm. BrightBuild didn't have a funding model that way. We raised VC, but we also were doing very, very large enterprise deals that were very cash generative very quickly. So people would write large checks because I'm selling to very large organizations and they would, I'd say, you know, so it wouldn't be unusual maybe to get a 10 million euro check within the first six months of doing a deal with a a large carrier. And that 10 million euro would fund the business effectively. And then I would drive services and then I'd go on and do the next deal. Now it made the whole thing lumpy and it's an anathema to venture capitalists who don't like that model, want to generate elongated cash flows that are recurring and repeatable, but it was exactly the right model for that business at the time.
0: Interesting. Question around networking. So uh, I see that you wear the chairman of the ISA CEO Forum, a group of CEOs yes. um, who meet regularly to uh, listen to industry experts and discuss issues and whatnot. Um, so, what are your thoughts on networking and the role it plays in success? And then, I guess, in line with the ISA CEO Forum, what's your thoughts on uh, reinforcement learning?
1: Um so um networking is everything people buy from people and mm-hmm. um, the isa forum is an example of people buying from people but it is an example of the second thing you said which is like learning the lessons of those who have gone ahead you know gone in front of you mm. where people where ceos and people who with different experiences or people living the same experiences get an opportunity to share look I ran into that tax issue opening in the States or I hired this sales guy and that didn't work, but this is why it didn't work, et cetera, et cetera. So that that sharing of what others have done is invaluable and it's something CEOs don't do enough of. Like every business that's starting today or has started recently is following in the footsteps of someone who's made the exact same mistakes as, or, you know gone into the pit pitfalls ahead of them and the easier thing the, is not to fall into the same pitfall but it's to ask somebody who fell into it and say why how could I have avoided it and then you'll get mm. the answer you know so it's something we in in the Irish in industry need to do a lot more of um sharing experiences and also sharing you know potential entry points or sharing networks or you know not like in a much more um i think irish ceos are generally very generous when asked agreed it's just a question of of creating a forum where you know where you know those requests can be made and those questions can be asked and answered
0: why do you think it is that um they don't put in the time
1: i think everyone's super busy it's hard to kind of carve it out and everybody also has to see a lot, you know, see value for it, right? So mm-hmm. I think I, like, to be honest, I think sometimes the forums are are a little contrived or you know, getting that model completely right. so in terms of um I think to do it properly, you would have to kind of um create a kind of concentrated experience where you kind of you match up you know companies who express interest in things that they'd like to get better at or know more about. And and also match it with people who are saying, yeah, well, these are things I know about. These are things you know I'm good at. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes in you know uh, get-togethers of an evening, whatever, it can sometimes be a bit haphazard where I'm not aware that you know something or you have a network into somewhere that I need. But I, and because I don't know it, I never ask. And I think that probably that's probably something missing in the way in which. Uh, we network. You know, I, I think it's probably an opportunity for some someone or some to, try, to try to find that a better pairing of experience.
0: Interesting. Um, you're now the CEO and founder of Sweeper. Uh, rather than me spend thirty seconds giving the thirty second commercial, why don't you take the mic? You'll do a much better job.
1: Sure. Um, well, uh, uh, Sweeper is a um, a customer a digital support platform for telecommunication customers so it's basically a platform that enables telecommunication organizations to um, move more of their service uh, and digital in- and interactions into a digital world right so and mm. to do that in a highly personalized way so our observation about um early forays into digital care or digital service is that it's generic and a bit impersonal and it disenfranchises a lot of people who just are not technical and prefer to talk to a human. Um, And what we recognized was that, well, well, a lot of digital um, care lacked was context. So it lacked context of who you are, it lacked context of what was happening in that moment. It lacked context of what had happened previously and who you were generally to the company. And so each interaction was like starting anew when you're talking to a bot, like a digital agent, as opposed to a human agent. And if the transition of care is going to move into being a truly digital experience with a human layer to it, no doubt, that's never gonna go away. But increasingly, more and more of the things we want to achieve can be handled very proficiently and very efficiently using digital technologies that are personalized and deal with you as an individual, not as a cohort or a generic, you know, customer. So that's what Sweeper's platform basically allows these organizations to build these journeys, taking in all this context so that each interaction you have, whether it's on a phone or over voice or through messaging, um, is tailored to you and your situation you did that very
0: well alan um i'm not gonna lie i went down to your site and it, it took me a while to wrap my head around exactly what it was until i came across the seven principles of personalization um and then with that i kind of wrapped my head around it i'll leave a link below uh, to yeah. your linkedin page your website and stuff but i have a question um on those seven principles of personalization things like um uh, sentiment analysis, aptitude, customer circumstance, um, customer 360, query prompting, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, customer circumstance is the one I'd like to spend a minute or two on. Um, because yeah. this one fascinates me. You have the ability to learn more about your customer. Um, if they work from home, their working hours, potentially even what room they're working in. Can you talk me through, hopefully with an example, of how this information can be useful to The provider
1: yeah definitely I mean this is exactly why a digital platform can be very powerful and particularly one that retains a memory of things so let me give you an example let's say you were using a voice assistant to to ask for care so you would say Mm uh hey Alexa um Netflix is is buffering at the moment what's Mm -hmm. going on our software would then, so, so the actual way, just to, to be completely technically accurate, you would say, "Hey Alexa, talk to Virgin Media," and then Virgin, you then Virgin Music. How can I help? And you say, "Okay, I'm, uh, I'm having problems with Netflix. It's buffering." So what our software then does in the background is it starts to run lots of tests. It checks the latency within the network. It starts testing the availability of net netflix as a service in within your region and in the building of that interaction we could also include it oh but we also would do an inventory of the devices that are capable of streaming netflix in your home so we would know you know a samsung q90 can stream netflix so can the sony which is up in the bed you know upstairs or whatever or sorry the Sony TV or the phones and we'd give that list and ask you which of these devices are you currently use on, on the Samsung TV at this point we might say to you um uh is that is that tv in the living room or sorry we'd say which room is that tv in and you would say in the living room we would retain that information we'd remember that so and then we might also ask we also might also note the time of this so it's 7 p.m in the evening so now we have a data point that says Rian watches so occasionally will stream a movie on Netflix at 7 p.m. on his Q90 Samsung, which is in the living room. So the next time we have an interaction and you say, I'm having an issue with my TV, we can replay to you. Oh, is it the Q90 in, in the living room? And you go, yeah, yeah. But the reason why that's an important thing, it's, in, it's a bit superficial on one level but it's important because as a customer it shows to you as a provider that I pay attention to what's important and I'm trying to shortcut the care journey and I'm trying Mm -hmm. to make sure that I'm gathering contextually relevant information to help me help you but obviously it's not entirely altruistic I thought as in I know that a little bit about you and now I can start to tailor things that well you know what Rian might like the fact that we have a special on Sky Movies because I know he watches movies because he's told me he watches Netflix. So there's a kind of exchange of information where we build up a richer profile of the customer, but all with a purpose of predominantly serving them better, making them feel better about the provider, making them feel that they're known and respected. And also then they also know that the accuracy of things that might say, increase that relationship or grow that relationship through share of wallet or other services will be done because it's contextually relevant. It won't be random and scattergun. And one of the biggest challenges around, like people think organizations like telecommunication companies are desperate to move more and more of the interactions away from humans down digital channels. In fact, there's a whole cohort of people in those companies that want the exact opposite. Because they know when you're on a call to a person, they can have that agent at the end of the script say, "Oh, are you interested in buying the fight this weekend?" Like they'll, they will. The sales channel of of ancillary revenue that's driven through care and service is enormous, and they don't want to lose that by going down this digital channel, which has none of the nuance or none of the smarts that a person has, right? And so that's why. The things we're bringing into the digital arena are materially important because we can achieve the same things that a person can with a by designing these digital interactions in a personalized and highly interactive way.
0: I'm assuming then if you can't fix that Netflix problem that it's beneficial to the provider because you've given them incredibly good information saying you know this is you know, this is gone
1: Well what happens is one of two things one It is a network problem and I make some changes and I adjust it and and Netflix stops buffering. Two, it's a Netflix issue. They're having a service outage and we've checked and it's out. So we'll tell you, you know what? It's not us or your network. Your network is perfectly fine but Netflix is having some issues we're seeing. So we'll keep monitoring it, let you know when it's back. So that's the second thing. Or it's something we can't figure out. And what we say is, you know what, Rena? I'm not sure what's happening here but I'm gonna pass you to an agent, a human agent and I'll make sure they get all of the context of what we've just done. So when that human agent picks up your issue, they're going, OK, so I see if we've run the tests and we've done tried the following things. OK, so it's none of the basic stuff. I'm going to have to do something else. or I'm going to have to send an engineer. So that way, the issue is the, the purpose of care is to fix the issue or take the issue from the customer's hands as quickly as possible. That's the purpose.
0: I like it. What's your favourite aspect of being a CEO
1: founder? <laughs> Depends on what day you ask me. Some days, I uh, I wish I was uh, I was I was not CEO. Um, I think I so the thing I enjoy most about being the CEO of a company is trying is, is is two things. It's like Initially, you set the vision for the company. You set the mission. You say, like, I have an aspiration. I think the world should work this way. Let's try and see what we can do about doing that. And then what you do is you try to surround yourself with incredibly talented people. And effectively, what you're quite quickly after you've got to a certain point, the CEO's job is to create environments that enable those people to do their job. Because pretty much everybody who works for me is much, much, much better at their respective job than I could ever be, right? They are, I've got better salespeople, got better financial people, better product people, better technology people, better delivery people, you know. So, and my job is to try to get that team to work collegiately and to, and to get roadblocks out of their way and to get the best out of them. You become kind of like a conductor, and I really enjoy doing that. I don't always—I'm not always the best at it. I'm every day. I'm learning something. I'm appreciating my own failings and you know, foibles, but I—I enjoy that role.
0: Three questions, Sophia. Um, the first one probably was the hardest one to answer, and it's uh, what's your personal definition of success? Uh,
1: my personal definition of success is at any point, so when there's, I mean, I, I'm gonna narrow the scope of the answer, right? To say sure. success in business versus success in yeah. life,
0: just,
1: right? Yeah. So success in business is about um, at any point viewing what you have at the moment as a, um, sorry, one second. it's got a call coming through. <laughs> um, viewing what you have um, at any point, viewing what you have in terms of business assets as a as like a, like a, a hand of cards, um, and always being able to look back at the hand you had and saying, "I played that as well as I could have," right? Doesn't mean that you'll always succeed, but you did your best with what you had, and you wouldn't make any different choices. And I do it that way. Like I view that. At any point in time, whether you're in a crisis, where you're sailing high, um, there's an optimum way to play the, heart, the, the cards you have. And and you can make bad choices and you can look back and say, yeah, I didn't do very well from that position. Or you can look back and say, no, I did quite well. I did everything I would have done. I wouldn't, re- I wouldn't re- retake or replay any of those decisions.
0: Final question for you, Alan, before I let you go is if you had the final decision-making power on adding a mandatory subject that's not on the curriculum to the secondary school curriculum, what would it be and why?
1: Um, I would put... I don't know what I would call this, but I would, I would want a mandatory a mandatory um, subject that focused on imagination and uh, challenging people to think differently about things and look at the world with different perspectives. Um, so straightforward, like just dreaming up new ideas and doing new things, but probably more importantly, and um, in, in, particularly in today's age, the ability to step out of your normal way of looking at a topic or a subject and looking mm. at it critically from a completely different perspective like i give like a like a political example would be um, like looking at like uh looking at um the muslim world through the eyes of somebody who lives in lahore in Pakistan versus somebody who lives in Western Europe, like something that's so 180, that would just gives you a different perspective on how, you know, how things should be thought about. And I think we all get locked into these kind of fairly blinkered ways of thinking. And I think we need to give our, our children uh, much better skills in critical thinking and critical analysis so that they don't always just, just believe what they're told.
0: That's a great answer. And it's, it's the first time anyone ever Has given that answer um, Alan Coleman, founder and CEO of Sweeper Thanks for being my guest today I had a pleasure spending the last 35-40 minutes with you But uh, I'll leave links below to your LinkedIn Website and all, all the other stuff Wherever you're listening or watching this For today, thank you
1: Thanks very much, real pleasure